Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Well, welcome to this afternoon's session, Time, Space and Being. Uh, we tend to think of space and time as the core structure of the universe, and it fe feels, on a visceral level, very straightforward. Yet, Einstein argued that space and time are the modes by which we think, not the conditions in which we live. And it's not just scientists who've queried this. Uh, philosophers such as Kant and Heidegger argued that space and time were the framework of our thought rather than the character of the world. So what are space and time? And could it be that space and time are a form of human fantasy? So with me to discuss this question, we've got a, uh, a panel that is ideally suited to addressing uh, such a profound issue. Uh, Michaela Massimi is a uh, philosopher and senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. Um, she would describe herself as a Kantian, and no doubt she'll provide a bigger picture of that for you today. Uh, Michaela is the co-editor-in-chief of the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science. Uh, Hugh Price is the uh, philosopher and Bernard Russell professor at Cambridge. Uh, his many books include Facts and the Function of Truth, and uh, Hugh is also one of the founders of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. That's the investigation of threats to the existence of humankind. And Julian Barber is uh, a theoretical uh, physicist. And remarkably, uh, Julian has made uh, new contributions to cosmology and to general uh, relativity as an independent researcher. He's author, also author of a book called The End of Time, which you'll appreciate is entirely relevant to today's <laughs> debate. So I'm going to give uh, each of them just four minutes to uh, address the question, are space and time the structure of the universe and, uh, or a framework of human thought? And then we'll have uh, the debate in the usual fashion. So let us kick off straight away with Michaela. The question of whether space and time are um, structure of our universe or not is, as you say, one of the most uh, profound and difficult questions in the history of uh, philosophy. St. Augustine used to say, 
um, what is time? If someone uh, asks me, I know the answer, but if I try to explain what it is, then I don't know anymore the answer. And we can say the same about space. In a way, space is all around us. We move in space. We point at directions in space. It's the gap between my foot and the platform or when I board on a train. But if I have to try to give an explanation of what space is, I find myself exactly in the same position. Going back in the history of philosophy, um, some of the most prominent minds uh, try to give answers to these questions. Um, so back in the 1715, uh, the German philosopher Leibniz sent a letter to the Princess of Wales accusing Newton of uh, spreading uh, atheism in England for defending a specific view about space and time as uh, absolute space and time, as some empty container that exists and would exist even if no human beings, no object existed. To which Samuel Clarke, who took the defense of Newton, replied that far from uh, spreading atheism uh, in, in England, the Newton view on space and time was the best defense for, uh, um, for the importance of God, because we can see of absolute space and time as an expression of God's presence in the world. So Newton thought that absolute space was the expression of God's omnipresence in nature, and absolute time was the expression of God's eternity. Now, uh, that debate in different forms is still going on in contemporary philosophy of physics. We no longer talk about Newton absolute time and space, but we talk about the space-time and relativity, and no doubt uh, the rest of the speakers will talk about that. But the debate took a turning point in the um, 18th century with Immanuel Kant. Kant was the first one that, uh, in my view, clearly distinguished two different questions. One is the question of how we come to know about space and time. How is it that our knowledge of the world seems to be spatiotemporal, so we know that objects are in space and time. That's a question about our knowledge. That's a different question from the metaphysical question about are space and time real? How should we think of space and time? Kant gave different answers to these different questions. So on the first question, on the question of how we come to know about space and time, he defended an a prioristic view. So against the empiricists from Berkeley to, um, in a way, to Leibniz, he defended the view that space and times are a priori forms of intuitions through which we come to know the world as in space and time. So the metaphysical question, he gave a, a related but distinct answer in terms of the ideality of space and time, and he used different kinds of arguments. So he has all sets of arguments against Newton, absolute time and absolute space, um, including one that um, resources to a charge of Spinozism, which is a not a very well-known argument. It's an argument that he has in the critical practical reason, not the pure reason, where he basically says, well, if Newton is right, if really space and times are determinations of God's substance, then our freedom is jeopardized. We're just uh, automata moving and acting in an absolute space and time. So, so we should keep those two questions distinct, because in my view, the answer that Kant gave to the first question about how we come to know the world as spatial temporal is still very valid, and it's, it's an answer that uh, some studies in contemporary neuroscience, uh, studies on rats and how um, higher vertebrates um, learn how to know the, the world as spatial temporal, seems to vindicate loosely some Kantian intuition about space and times, whereas the question about the metaphysics and answer in terms of ideality, I think it's, it's a question that should be left to contemporary physicists and cosmologists to answer. 
there's a particular problem about thinking about the question as to whether time is real at the moment, which is, comes from the fact that, that the, the word time has become ambiguous in contemporary debates. And if we're not careful to note the ambiguity, it can turn out that we're simply talking past each other in trying to address the question as to whether time is real. So I want to start off by distinguishing two conceptions of time so that we have that clearly on the table in front of us. On the one hand, you could call it the ordinary conception of time, the ordinary human conception of time, and we can distinguish a number of elements to that. One is the idea that the present moment is somehow particularly special. Um, people often say that the, the, the present exists, the past and the future don't. The future doesn't yet exist, the past no longer exists. Another aspect of this ordinary conception is that the idea of the flow or passage of time, there seems to be something essentially dynamic about time. And another third element of it, uh, which is again subtly different I think, is the idea that the, there's some fundamental sense in which the future is different from the past. So those are all elements of what we might call our ordinary human conception of time. And then in physics we get a conception of time which is very different from that, in that uh, at, at least in the view of most physicists, Julian can tell me if I'm wrong. There's no place for any of those three elements in the picture that physics gives us of time. So there's no privileged present moment, there's nothing like a, a real dynamic flow of time, and there's no deep, at the deep level anyway, there's no uh, deep distinction between the past and the future. Now, but what that means is that if two people are having a, a discussion about whether time is real or not, they may be talking about different things. Because one of them may be defending the reality of time in the second sense, in the, in, in the physicist sense, and the other may be attacking it in the ordinary sense. And those two things are, of course, perfectly compatible. Um, so what's happened is we've reached one of those episodes in the history of science or the history of thought where we just have to decide how we want to use a term. It doesn't really matter which way we go. We could invent a new, a new word for the new physicist conception of time. Another example where this has happened is the word atom. I mean, as it was originally introduced by the Greek, it, it, Greeks, it meant something indivisible. But nobody these days thinks that atoms are indivisible. But we, so at some point we had a choice point. We, we, we had a choice about whether to continue using the term atom for the, the, the small things which were playing a role in, in 19th and early 20th century physics. Where, uh, as it turned out, we, we went on calling them atoms even though they weren't divisible. And we have a similar choice in the case of time. So when we're talking today about whether time is real, we need to be very careful about which kind of time we're talking about, whether we're talking about the, the time of ordinary experience, which has a distinguished present moment, a sense of flow, and a difference between the past and future, or whether we're talking about time in the physicist sense, uh, which doesn't have any of those things. Uh, well, I, I totally agree with Hugh on the importance of, of asking exactly what concept of time we're, and, and space we're talking about. I'm going to talk about what seems to me essential for doing physics, uh, and I'm going to go back to how Michaela started with this famous correspondence between Leibniz and Clark, who was representing Newton. Now, Newton's idea of absolute space, I think, really is very intuitive. It comes from the fact that human beings developed on a basically stable Earth, and in this room here we have walls that are not moving relative to each other. We can position things relative to the walls of this room and we know what we're talking about. So, so that's very nice and stable. And somehow or other I, you get the impression that 
space is there, as it were, like an invisible block of ice. And that, I think, is, is a fair characterization of how Newton thought about absolute space. He had very good reasons why he thought that way. Now, Leibniz said, no, it's, it's not that. He said, space is the order of coexisting things. And it's very nice. He said that in one of the letters. Uh, and Clark wrote back, clearly prompted by Newton, saying, what do you mean by order? And the next letter Leibniz wrote, he didn't answer that question. So that the letter from Clark then says, you haven't answered my question. What do you mean by order? And then Leibniz comes clean. He says, I imagine there are bodies in the universe, and by order I mean the distances between the bodies. So if I have here uh, three bodies in the universe, I mean the distances between them, and that's all there is. You mustn't think there's a space in which they're embedded. It's just the distances between them. That's the only reality, and that's what space is. It's the distances between the things. Now, I would say that uh, I would change that and say that Leibniz was on the right track, but it's something different. I would say that space, to the extent you can talk about it meaningfully, is the order of coexisting facts. Now, let me say what I mean by that. And this is something, actually, that the ancient Egyptians, the surveyors, actually really stumbled upon, because the ancient Egyptians knew about Pythagoras' theorem 4,000 years ago. So if you drive stakes into the ground, and then you take uh, measuring rods, bamboo canes or, or ropes, which you can pick up just like that, thanks to nature. So here are my stakes. And I can, I can measure the distances between all of these things. So if there's, if there's 50 points there, there's essentially 50 times 49 divided by two distances that you can measure there. And that's something empirical. You get facts. You get your measuring rod and you find out what those things are. Those are facts. And then if a clever mathematician looks at him, he finds something very remarkable. If there, are more, if there are five or more points between which you've measured those distances, you find they satisfy algebraic relations. Certain combinations of those distances, you square them and you take square roots and things like that, you get something absolutely magical. A particular combination of them is equal to zero. And this tells you you've discovered some very profound order in it. And it is that order which I believe is really the only thing that is real about space. I can move this thing around, and it doesn't change those separations between it. And actually, the overall size means nothing. Everything is actually expressed ultimately in terms of angles. So th those original measurements that the Egyptian surveyors make are the facts, and it's the order, the relationships between the facts, which tell us that space is, 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 is there. And once you've got that, what is wonderful, the mathematician can then place these points in an imaginary space and, and, and register them there. And then he can imagine moving them around like that. But actually, the facts are completely unchanged. So you wouldn't think, you shouldn't think there's a real space in which I'm moving this. The reality is, is just those relationships. And if you read the opening page of Piaget's account about how children learn about space, it is actually much the same. He's saying it's not nearly as easy as that. The debate. Theme one. You had a very clear account there of that space is not something that exists, that, that you want to say exists in reality. Um, 
I'd like to push the two philosophers here to say what they what they think space is. Michaela, you gave us a historical description uh, and Kant's account, but are you are you wanting to say that space and time are forms of thought and aren't reality? Right. I guess the question of whether I'm going to concentrate on space, I'm sure time is going to be covered by Hugh, but um, let's focus on space. When we ask the question of whether space is real, we need to distinguish different meaning of what we mean by real. If by real we mean a space, (coughs) some kind of substance, in in the way in which Newton thought the space was, then... uh, we're going to end up exactly with the debate that Julian was referring to, debates that are still ongoing in contemporary physics and philosophy of physics about um, whether we should think of space as some sort of substance or we should think of space as a a bundle of relations. Obviously, we are no longer working within the framework of Newtonian mechanics, so we're not talking about Newton absolute time and space, but we're talking about the space-time of general relativity and how can one be a relationalist in contemporary debates about space. Um, So that's a debate for for the physicist. Um, But there is another sense of being real, which has to do with, I suppose, what you was referring to as our ordinary intuitions of the world as spatiotemporal, or what, we, what Kant would say, our experience of the world as spatiotemporal. So real can mean mind-independent. So if you're asking me, is space real? You're asking me, is space mind-independent? Um, And so a Kantian response would be to say, well, no, in a way, it cannot be totally mind-independent because Kant would say it's an a priori forms of intuition. Studies by the um, 2014 Nobel Prize winner John O'Keefe and his colleagues over the past decades on uh, the hippocampus have shown how uh, we are born in a way hardwired to perceive the world as a three-dimensional Euclidean space. So from very early ages, our hippocampus developed a very sophisticated system of cell differentiation that allows us to find directions in space, identify boundaries, distances in space. So, for example, according to John O'Keefe and colleagues, that seems to vindicate some loosely Kantian view that, uh, in a way, we are born hardwired to perceive the world as a um, as, uh, as in space. But uh, um, summary of a, yeah. a, a go at a Kantian Kant. In a, we, we have to see the world in terms of space and time. We mm-hmm. have to perceive the world in space and time. But it's not somehow out there in an independent reality. I, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I'm saying those are different questions. Exactly. One is a metaphysical so question so about so the metaphysics so, so do you think, of space do you th- and time. Do you think that out there? There, there isn't space you know, in this independent reality that out no, there, I'm not saying there isn't that space and time? No, no, no. What, what I'm saying is that one is a metaphysical question about... No, I understood it once a metaphysical question. And that's a metaphysical w- question w- within... Yeah. I, I understood that, but I want to push mm-hmm. you and say, well, where are you going to come down? What are you saying about the metaphysical question of what's out there? Oh, that's a question that I'm going to leave to Julian. So I would say this is a question... I would say that one of the typical problems with um, the Kantian view is that very often people have been reading Kant and the epistemological um, question as a question that is tantamount to a metaphysical question, which is legitimate because that's the way Kant, uh, in a way, uh, presented his view. So obviously uh, his view 
is a form of idealism about space and time. What I want to suggest, and this is really my take on Kant, is that we should distinguish between Kant's contribution to the epistemology of space and times from Kant's own view about the metaphysics of space and time. I wouldn't buy into Kant's idealism, but I think that there is a still a kernel of truth in his account of how we come to know the world as spatiotemporal. And but the but first but question is a question really not even for okay. metaphysics, metaphysician, but, but for physicists. But, but my question to you is, if you don't buy into Kant's idealism, which somehow we can't say anything about what's mm -hmm. out there, what do you think about space and time out there. I think that they are... Uh, and when you say you point to Julian, presumably there are other physicists who will have different views oh, yeah, to yeah. Julian about space and time. <laughs> do, you do you just point to all of these physicists and say, well, I don't have any view about what there is out there, I'm just going to leave it to the physicists to decide? I, I'm going to say that I'm interested in the epistemological question. So one of the reasons why I'm attracted to the Kant position is because I'm interested in the question of how we come to know the, the world as in space and time. And, and the metaphysical question is a very profound question, but it's a question that I think will be better left to whatever the... Okay. And from a from epistemological point of view, we, we've got no choice. We have to think of the world in terms of space and time. Well, that's what I would say, yes. Okay. Just a very quick one, yeah. if I may. Uh, just to note your, your point about us being hardwired and, and the experiments, the man who got well, the Nobel Prize... Well, that's not exactly Prize, the way Kant would put it. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the man who got the Nobel Prize very recently for the, yeah. the rats having this picture of there, uh, and that it was Kantian. I just would like to know, and I don't suppose the experiment is done, these fish that live in shoals and, and are never on solid ground, whether they have whether they're hardwired in the same way that rats are. I think that's an interesting question because actually if you stop and think about it, there are no stable walls for those fishes there. Particularly if they're out in the mid-ocean and all they're doing is feeding on plankton and things like that. There may not be anything like, or, or, or the ones halfway down to the bottom of the ocean. So I think that's an interesting question. Just, I just wanted to interject that. Theme two. So, so Hugh, where do you stand on this? I mean, is, is space and time out there real or, or not? Well, Hilary, you, you, you probably know the, 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 the philosophy version of the light bulb joke, which was how many philosophers does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it depends on what you mean by change. <laughs> uh, if, you know, philosophers have this annoying <laughs> habit of, of, of not taking the, the words at face value, and that's what I want to right. do to you. And I, and I, I, right. I, I already... So, so, uh, so I, I was in return trying to... Yeah, well, actually, once we, you clarified the, the meaning of the words, but, but and well, the way I that you wanted I, I, to use them in terms of the present and the river, I, but within that, what do you then want to say about whether space and time are independent of us? I'll, I'll, I'll come to the independent of us question, okay. but first of all, I, I, I just want to start by saying that one of the things I wanted to say uh, about space, as I said at the beginning, is that we have to be very careful that, that we're not dealing with an ambiguity. Uh, and that the, as, as we look at the, um, the trajectory from our ordinary conception of space, what, as Julian says, we may have because we, we tend to live in environments with, with solid objects, things like walls in them. If we move from that to the kind of picture of space that Julian was offering us in this, um, done in these elegant mathematical terms, we can, if we want, continue using the term space, but we have to recognize that we've also got the option to simply talk uh, to, 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 to invent a different word and say, we, we've given up on that one, uh, we've decided to use this one instead. So we, we, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that there's a single thing whose essence we're trying to understand all along. Uh, 
So that's one of the, I wanted to say about space, as I said, at about time. Now, coming to, to the question of reality of, of what's out there, I think we have to, we have, to have a, a similar caution about that kind of metaphor of things being either out there or not. I mean, one way to think about it is in terms of the notion of the world. I think the notion of the world is a, is a notion that does a lot of harm in philosophy because people don't reflect on it enough. Here's one thing that you might mean by out there. You might mean the question as to whether something is true or not is in some sense independent of us. So the question as to whether it's noisy in here is independent of us. It's just at the moment it's not. There's a fact about that. But it's a fact to understand which we have to think about you know, the fact that humans have ears and so on. So, that, so there's, a, there's a kind of human ingredient in it, similar if we talk about colors. Now that's not a, that's not a, a, um, that's not a sharp divide that we can put things on, on one side or, or the other. It, it's, a, it's a continuum. Um, and I want to say that when we're asking the, the, when we're asking in blunt terms the question, is something really out there, we're making the mistake of thinking of, the, of that as a sharp bifurcation, where it's really a continuum. And what we can say, I think, is that the kinds of notions used in advanced science, or the kind of picture of space that, that Julian was giving us, is a lot less infected with distinctively human ways of thinking than talking of noise or, or color or, or, or smells. And, so, and that's, a, that's a kind of clarification which has been going on for centuries, at least since the 17th century. And it's what the, the 20th century philosopher, great American philosopher, uh, Wilfred Sellers, called the distinction between the, the manifest image, the ordinary sort of picture of the world we have, and, and the scientific image. But there's no reason to think of that uh, uh, as a sharp line. And that's the respect in which I was objecting to the way in which you were putting that question. So is there anything that you would want to say with, with those caveats about your two, you had two descriptions of time you gave us to start with, time as the present and time as the river, um, with your caveat about a, a sharp distinction between the real and yeah. not real, what would you want to say with those about the existence or not of, say, the uh, time as a river? Uh, I would say, want to say that the time as a river thing is much more part of what Sellers called the manifest image. So, so it, it, it involves our ordinary human ways of thinking about time much more than the scientific picture does. So does that mean you don't think that there is a river of time independent of us? There's no direction of time out there, as it were. Uh, no, so this, this, is, this is where I want to resist... Right. Uh, the, 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 the sharp division between what's out there and what's not. Because I don't want to end up in the position of denying the ordinary sorts of things that we say, like we say, it's now Friday afternoon. That's perfectly true. Well, I didn't make mm. that up. Uh, that, 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 that's, we can say that's a fact, it's Friday afternoon. But, but that, that involves a reference to, to what time it is now, which is something which is something that we can only say because we are kind of creatures who are embedded in time in a particular way. So one of the characteristics of, of, of this, what I was trying to portray as a, as, as a kind of gradual um, um, gradation for, from the, the, the more human-centric concepts at one end to the, to the more scientific concepts at the other, is that 
at the subjective end, we, or, the, or, or the, the human-centric end, we, we, we have concepts whose use depends on, on, on various kinds of contingencies about us, on the fact that we have locations in space and time, things of that kind. Or, as Julian says, that the, the fact that we happen to live in environments uh, with, with fixed, or what seem to us as fixed phys physical objects in them. Whereas the scientific view of the world is a, world, a view which depends on fewer and fewer of those contingencies. But it's basically a continuum. And do you want to privilege one of those? No, or not at all. And are, all, all, of the, I, I, are, are I, I, all of these just equi alternative ways of talking about it? Like They're not alternatives in the sense that you have to choose one or the other. Mm? Um, they're, they're, they're different ways of speaking. And if you're interested mm. in the scientific mm. project of finding right. a way of speaking which, um, which sort of detaches itself right. from the contingencies of our viewpoint, then, then you should you should learn to speak in the scientific way. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme three. So, Julian, do you, do you think there's anything privileged about the scientific picture well, of space I, I, and time? I think science is a phenomenal success. Uh, there was a very good lecture in Oxford recently by Paul Nurse, the present, uh, president of the Royal Society, where he's saying, I mean, it started with long ago before the agricultural revolution with metallurgy and things like that. Uh, and um, as regards sort of trying to understand what the world is, I think Hugh is, is right where he, I mean, I think it was very good where Hugh was talking about the different meanings of atoms, how, how the meaning of the word atom has changed. And I think if, you, if we really want to try and understand what this extraordinary universe really is like, we just have to look at what is the best um, current picture that science is giving us and, and recognize that it's changing all the time. Can I come in now to talk about time, how, how I think about it? Now, Leibniz, I think, on one thing, I believe Leibniz was right, basically, at the most basic level, on time. So, he, he as space, he said, space is the order of coexisting things, and I replace that by space is the order of coexisting facts. And Leibniz said, Time is just the succession of coexisting things, and I would say the succession of coexisting facts. And it's very easy to see what he meant by that. If I have a universe which just consists of three particles, I can imagine that in one instant of time they look like that. And I want you only to think of the shape that counts, just the shape. The two angles determine the shape of, of, of those three particles there. That, that's, that's one there. Uh, and then I may be given, I give one to you, then I give him the next one, and it's a different shape. But I could give you all intermediate ones that go continuously one into the other. And just by the successive shapes, I could order them 
in, in, in an order, just using the information in the successive shapes. What I can't do is put a direction onto it. Nothing in that we know in physics actually puts a direction on and says which one goes in, in which order. But I think for me, the, the Leibniz is spot on that you can really think of, 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 the, of the universe as just being successive shapes, one after another, like that. And in fact, if I were to throw them down in a confused heap there and shuffle them all, nothing is lost. The information is there. It's just like cutting up a movie into individual stills. I can put them back in, in, the, in the right order, and if it's a, a proper movie telling a proper story that we're familiar with, there will be a, a one direction in which you play it. We've all seen these reversed films where people come out of swimming pools backwards. <laughs> the film was taken as they dive in and then you just run the film backwards. But there is, uh, this is the problem of the origin of the arrow of time. Uh, and I don't know whether I, I, I I'm not going to give my talk that I gave at, at one o'clock in, in the ring. But uh, I, I think one can begin to understand that. Um, but now, I would say, I think there is a notion of now. It is just, so to speak, that the universe is like this now. That is our now. But the universe is now different, and this is our now now. I don't, I don't see... Einstein said he was terribly... The reason why Einstein was worried about there's no place for now was because he denied a notion of simultaneity. But I think there is a representation of Einstein's theory where you restore a notion of simultaneity, but you take out size and you only look at shapes. Um, so I, I think it will be possible to, to talk about now. And I think Einstein's great concern about there being no place for now in the modern worldview is just mistaken. Uh, it's always, we are in a particular now, and it's, it's constantly different. It's a wonderful world. I, I just want to take Julian up on, on, on the last point there, um, because I, I, I want to put the now towards the more human-centric end rather than towards the more scientific end. The way I like to make the point is to, to say, look, Julian, if I, if I asked you to tell me what you did last week or what the universe was like, last week, then in terms of your picture, you'd, you'd, show me the, uh, you'd show me the diagrams that represented the temporal stages of all of the days of last week. You haven't left anything out if you haven't pointed to any one of those, um, any one of those um, diagrams as representing the now. Indeed, it, if, if I said to you, well, you've told me all about last week, but you haven't said which of those days was now, Obviously, the only answer you can give is, well, each of them was now when yes. it happened. Oh, absolutely. Each, the, the, the world, the, 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 the space, who was it used this lovely expression, the space of possibilities? Was it you this morning? No, somebody used the space of possibilities. Perhaps it was George Ellis. The space of possibilities is all possible nows, and we're lucky enough to be in one of them. And it's damned marvellous, frankly, to see you all here listening wonderfully and, and Hillary smiling. That, that, is the, that is the space of all possibilities. It's all possible nows, and we're in one. And, and as one other thing is this accumulation, that the, the nows are very wonderful, because in some senses, what is inside my brain is not only this picture, but there's also pictures of these other nows that we think were in the past. So they're all there at once, in some okay. senses. This is why I know what Hugh looks like. Let, <laughs> let, let me have one more. I've just, I've just picked up two of these uh, frames at random, these frames from a movie, as you said. Now, we want this to, to think of this as a complete movie, so we, we want you to be in the movie, not outside it. Yes. I, 
Which of these frames are you in? I'm in both. Exactly. So, so neither is privileged from your point of view. Each one is privileged from the point of view of the particular version of you which is in that one. But that's true of the, one, the version of you which is in that one as well. I'm the biggest egoist. I'm interested in me now. <laughs> if I've, no, I mean, well, perhaps, maybe we're just... Precisely, but, but when you look at the description of the universe, there's no one of those frames is picked out. It's only no, well, this is, the, this is the gorgeous thing. There are many Julians, and there are all of us, there are many of us. They're all the experiences, they're all the moments in which we've lived. Yes, I mean, what a cornucopia of riches. I know, but in that sense, there are many nows, and, and no yeah, single exactly. now is picked out from the point of view of the Well, is this, I would say this is very encouraging. I mean, maybe we are, this is dangerous, but are we perhaps even beginning to move into the divine, where each of our, each of our instance is part of the totality of everything? It's I one manifestation of everything. I'd just be inclined to say no. How do we separate the business of the frames of thought, or the, in the Kantian description, the forms of intuition, and what Julian is trying to do, which is describe what uh, space and time are in the independent sense of physical character of the universe. How, how do we separate these? You, you had two versions, you know, the, the, wanting to separate the, the personal, as it were, from the, um, yes, the, but the scientific I, account. I, I, I insisted that it, it shouldn't be seen as a sharp separation. It should be seen as more of a gradation. So, so how, how do we tease these out? How much of, how much of Julian's account there do you think is in the, on the frames of thought bit? And how much of it do you think is to do with what's going on, what, I don't know how to refer to it since, uh, since you, you've cautioned me on, on describing it as out yes. there. Well, well I, I, I would say that what, gave, what, what, what Julian was illustrating by, by, by using these um, to, to illustrate the, the, the idea of the, the kind of description which his version of physics would give us of spatial relations and so on, that's pretty much as far at the opposite end of the spectrum from, from the human-centric stuff as it's at this stage possible for us to be. But then when he wanted to put the now into it, I, I, I thought he, he was confusing that with, with something which I would want to regard as being very much at the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay. Maybe just try I would also say, yeah. I mean, now and here are indexicals. So the very moment in which we talk about the now and the here, we're talking about Julian now, here, in this room, <laughs> talking to all of us. Uh, and it seems to me that, um, going back to your question, this is the... This is the Kantian, humocentric, if you want, point of view, that whenever we talk about space and times, we have to position ourselves in space and times. Now and here are privileged indexicals through which, with our language, we do that all the time. And, and our ability also, I wanted to respond to Julian about the example of the, um, uh, the mollusk on the shell. The difference between that and rats and us is that we have an ability to navigate around the world. So I take that some of those neuro-scientific uh, research about spatial memories have a lot to do with the way we think about space and times, um, not as the physicists think of them as some sort of a frame of reference, however you want to understand the frame of reference in terms of an empty container, bunch of relation, but they've got to do with our ability of locate ourselves 
in space and time here, now, and navigate in space and time. So my ability to catch the train to come down from Edinburgh to Hayon Y, my ability to discern north, south, east and west, and my ability to uh, move in space and time. So that's, yeah, that's, that's my response to, to that here and now. Maybe a w way of trying to get a just a better handle of what we're trying to say here, we just to ask some sort of lateral questions. One would be, c can we imagine something outside of space and time? Do, do you think we can imagine anything outside of space and time? Is there an outside of space and time? Well, Kant said we can think of empty space, but yeah. we cannot represent the absence of space. The way we represent the world is in space right. and time. So, so there's, there's no... Th there's I mean, would you both agree with that? Is, th is there no outside? It's not possible to somehow I, stand I outside and... Well, once again, I'm going to do this <laughs> annoying thing of asking for some clarification of the term outside. I mean, there's, w there's one way we can take the term outside where it sounds like a spatial term. Outside yeah. means, means in, in some other region of space yeah. other than the one we're talking about. In that sense, of course, no, nothing can be outside space. Uh, it's a contradiction. Um, you could maybe have a conceptual sense of outside, well, an exactly, alternative exactly. conceptual space. Exactly. So, so, so you, you might have a conception of things which were real, but which were not spatio-temporal. Yes. So you might think that, I mean, many people have thought that, that, so. that mathematics lives right. in some other realm, which is not so. a, a spatial realm. So do, do so, you think that? So, so do you think there is an alternative realm, which is not one which falls within framework? Can we think in a way which is not within a spatio-temporal framework? I, think, I certainly think we can think of things which are not spatio-temporal, and I would give numbers as an example. Now, my own view is, is it's, 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 it's not the traditional platonic view that, that numbers exist in, in, in Plato's heaven. Uh, that, that seems to me to have too much of the sort of residue of, of well, among other things, of, of a quasi-spatial picture. You're thinking of the, the numbers having to exist in some sense somewhere, although it's not strictly speaking, um, in space. I, I'd rather take a much more relaxed view and think about how we come to talk that way uh, and, and, and tie it in with my relaxed view to about the gradation between the, the sub subjective or human-centric stuff on the other, on one hand, and the, the, the more or less objective stuff on the other, and, 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 and say, yes, n numbers are uh, a perfectly good example of something that we talk about which is not in space. And I would say that the value is another thing that we talk about. So we can think space. the idea, can we, of yes. something that's yes. not temporal? Yes, certainly we can. I mean, the, 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 roughly speaking, the only kinds of things that mm. have to exist in, in space and time are, are sort of physical matter, things of that kind. But lots of things that we talk about are not of that kind. Right. Would you go along with that? Um. I probably don't have the sophisticated view of uh, numbers that <laughs> you was referring to, <laughs> so I, I I wouldn't really know how to think of even mathematical entities in uh, in in those lines. Um, I find a hard time to think of uh, something that exists Brilliant. outside. Can I sort of slightly change subject and come? Mm. Well, this sounds awfully egocentric, but I'd like to challenge the existence of whether Julian exists and in what sense he does. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, if you looked at me microscopically, I'm different. I, I change billions of times between one second and the next. I mean, the hemoglobin. Read Richard Dawkins account of the hemoglobin molecule, how, how it changes, how many are made and destroyed in, in, a, in a split second in our body. It's just, 
and in my book, The End of Time, I talk about our cat. It was phenomenal. It could leap six feet in the air and catch swifts in flight. And I have the sentence, the cat that leapt is not the cat that landed. And um, come back to Leibniz. Leibniz has a fantastic vision of the world, which I think for me is, is about the best I like. First of all, he makes the statement, which I don't think is tenable, which all fundamental entities in the world are sentient beings, and he calls them monads. And he says, all monads are just different views of the universe, uh, uh, views of the same universe from a different point of view. And I would, I, I, I go along, I think for me this is still about the best way of thinking about the universe. We, each of us in experiencing, are, we, we, are, we are part of the universe and everything about us is just part. And to some extent I think it's very true, we, in the truest sense we are just part of the universe. I don't, and I don't believe in myself as an autonomous person. I find this very striking when I'm giving a talk. Very often I have not the remotest idea what word is going to come out of my mouth in two seconds time. And a lot of that is determined by the reaction from the audience or something I suddenly recall from an earlier discussion with Hugh at breakfast or something like that. I'm, I'm to be quite honest, I'm not in charge of myself. <laughs> I, I, I am a manifestation of, of the universe. And the, the mm. poets have always said they don't create their poems, they're just conduits that mm. comes out. Of course, you have the strangeness that as just a bit of the universe, you have tried to provide a description of it in the description you've just given us. So you have this sort of little bit of self-reference in the, in, in the universe, like you're, you're, you're the standing back. There would just be this one bit which somehow be mapped onto everything else in some way, which is rather Well, the self-reference, of course, is very difficult. That would be. But Leibniz has a lovely... It's, it's wrong. I'm, I'm being hugely megalomaniac. I'm saying I am the entire universe, but Leibniz has this wonderful picture of when you're at some distance from the sea, you hear the confused noise of the waves breaking on, on the shore. And, and so the real, all the details are at a, at a level where you can't pick it up easily. You can only pick up some things close to you, so that it's that confused noise. But Leibniz makes the claim we are literally the whole universe. And I think there may well be a case for that. The fact that if you go back and say, what is, what is the information that is actually determining our universe, which solution of Einstein's equations we live in, actually that predetermines, or quantum mechanics, to a large degree determines what we are. So, so, so that's there. Let me also end with another lovely story. Ernst Mach, who's a great hero of mine, who gave his name to the Mach numbers, he said, he said, we, I am utterly different from what I was a child. And he tells a lovely story when he, when he, after he had a stroke. And he got into a train in, in Vienna. And at the opposite end of the carriage, down the, 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 the aisle, he saw an old man getting in at the other end. And he said, what a decrepit old academic that is. And then he realized there was a mirror down there. And he was looking at himself. <laughs> So it's just utterly changed. I'm completely changed from me as a baby. But I would say in each case, in some real sense, we were the, we were the total universe. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.